Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the history of the cops, episode 10, Constantine. You're not listening to the wrong podcast and the intro has not changed. Just the intro today is special because, well, Constantine is special. The Coptic liturgical hymn they use for the intro is dedicated to Constantine to be sung on the Coptic Feast of the Cross. My friend and amazing deacon, Mina Yaqub, helped and recorded it. It is translated as follows. Through the prayers of my lord King Constantine and his mother Queen Helena, O Lord, grant us the forgiveness of our sins. Now, this is significant. Not only Constantine is mentioned with the company of St. Mary, St. Antony, and other traditional Coptic saints, he is there despite exiling Pope Athanasius from his seat in Alexandria. And St. Athanasius for the Copts is their greatest Pope and their most beloved national hero. I used his picture as represented in modern Coptic art, for the podcast, because he's probably the most known Coptic historical figure. In addition to his rocky relationship with the Coptic leadership, Constantine was not above the usually brutal bar plays of Roman emperors. He went as far as to kill his own son when he was deceived into seeing him as threat. And did I mention that he wasn't baptized until the last few days of his life, essentially on his deathbed? So technically, he was only officially a Christian for like a week. If you're thinking something is off here, well, remember, I did say Constantine is special. For the record, I think Constantine belongs in the Coptic liturgy, despite all his flaws. Once we understand his world and his achievement, it becomes clear that Constantine has changed the world and played a major role in the history of Christianity and therefore the history of the cops, and for that, he deserves one day of the year to commemorate his memory. Last week, when Diocletian abdicated, Constantine was at his court, officially to receive his education and military training. Unofficially, he was also a hostage to ensure the cooperation of his father, who was the junior emperor in the West. Constantine's situation was tricky. Sure, he was a Caesar's oldest son, but his father had divorced Helena, his mother, for a politically convenient marriage 
that produced other children. He was also based on the east with Diocletian, while his father was at the opposite end of the empire. It became even trickier when Diocletian abdicated. Now, he was a contender to become a Caesar, but in a hostile court, because Galerius naturally wanted his own men as Caesars, and eventually succeeded at his aim, but Constantine was never his man. On the other hand, the situation could not have been better for Galerius. He was the de facto replacement for Diocletian, with two loyal Caesars and a faraway Coagasti, who Galerius had his oldest son as hostage. Galerius would be crazy if he gave away his leverage and let Constantine reunite with his father. What happened next is Galerius gave away his leverage and let Constantine reunite with his father. Apparently, Galerius got really drunk one night and let Constantine go. Constantine got on a horse and never looked back until he was with his father. Legend has it that he broke the legs of every imperial horse he rode, so when Galerius sobers up and wants to get him back, his agents wouldn't be able to catch up to Constantine. Constantine and his father then went on a campaign in Britain, where the troops that served under his father got to know Constantine, and Constantine got to cultivate their loyalty. Which was perfect timing, because his father died in less than a year from the reunion, and immediately the troops declared Constantine as an Augustus, and of course, he accepted. You see, Constantine was an ambitious man. Throughout all his life, you can see the threads of power weaving his story. He respected power. He aimed to consolidate it, and above all, he did not like to share it. Judge him all you want, but growing up in the anarchy of the 3rd century, and later in Diocletian's court, it was, the, it was only natural for him to value power. He was smart and patient so. So he sent a diplomatically worded letter to Galerius, informing him that he was declared as a senior emperor by his troops and he only accepted because of their pressure. Now as you can imagine, Galerius was furious. For power is finite. The more Constantine accumulate, the less Galerius has. Luckily for Constantine, in between them lay another claimant to the throne, who rose to power by the actions of the Senate in Rome. In order to get to Constantine, Galerius had to control Rome first. So he compromised. He gave Constantine the title Caesar, and concentrated his effort on reasserting control of Rome. With the title Caesar, Constantine gained legitimacy, and for a time, concentrated on good governance of his realm, which was what is now Britain, France, and Spain, and left Galerius and the other members of the Tetrarchy wasting men and resources fighting each other. Constantine by this point was a pagan but had no interest in persecuting the Christians. So while Galerius and his Caesar Daza were creating havoc in the east and Egypt, Constantine was securing his borders and building goodwill with all his subjects, including Christians. His favorite god at this point seemed to be Sol Invictus, the unconquered son, and that will change shortly. By the time Constantine consolidated his rule, Galerius was dead and for the surviving members of the Tetrarchy, 
it became clear that war is coming, and power sharing is no longer in style. Constantine knew the power of propaganda zone, so while the closest is the Tetrarchs to him in Italy, with raising taxes and enlarging his army, and naturally becoming a hated figure among the tax-averse Italians, Constantine was engaging in a multi-level propaganda campaign to raise his profile as a benevolent emperor supported by the gods to overthrow the tyrant in Rome. He also married off his half-sister to one of the, the Tetrarchs to form a political alliance and avoid a situation when he has to fight on multiple fronts. His opponent in Rome fired the first shot and declared war on Constantine. Now, a brief overview of the geography of Italy is due to appreciate the insanity of what happened next. The Italian peninsula is an extremely difficult place to conquer militarily. Surrounded on three sides with water, and on the fourth side, a formidable mountain range sits guarding its northern borders. A conquering army would have to go through extremely difficult and easily defensible mountain basses, then somehow feed itself in a hostile territory filled with walled cities that can last long sieges. And if all that is successful, then Rome sits in the middle of the peninsula, guarded by shiny and strong walls that can make the city last a really long siege. So when Constantine told his advisors and pagan soothsayers that he will take a third of his army and go to free Rome from tyranny instead of taking a defensive position and waiting, they strongly advised against it, and they probably thought he's a little crazy, but he went anyway. He was that kind of a person. It's hard to figure out what was going in his head, but historians speculate that Constantine had an aura of invincibility around him. Plus, of course, a lot of self-confidence and ambition that drowned the voice of logical reasoning by his advisors. Or maybe he was able to correctly predict that the Italians would welcome him as a savior and not as a conqueror, and his decision was perfectly reasonable. Who knows? Either way, Constantine went through the hostile territory, vastly outnumbered, and not knowing what to expect once he crosses the Alps into Italy. Predictably, the first town he came across closed its gates. But that was not a problem for Constantine. He wasn't planning any sieges. He was going all in. So he ordered his troops to burn the gates and storm the walls. And he surprisingly got in a quick victory. Important to our story, his troops were held back and there was no bloody massacres or looting. The restraining of soldiers while not something new, was a difficult thing to accomplish, and attest to Constantine's charisma and ability to cultivate loyalty from his soldiers. To Constantine, framing the war as a war to save Rome and the empire was far more important than any meager material riches. Convinced by Constantine's propaganda, towns and cities in northern Italy opened their gates and the road to Rome was open. Still so, Constantine was outnumbered two to one, and Rome's wall stood in the way. What happened next is an incredible tale that have changed the history of the Western world. According to Eusebius, a Christian bishop and a historian 
who lived during the events. While Constantine on his road to Rome, he looked at the sun and saw a unique sign with the message, with this sign you shall conquer. The message in the sky was followed by a dream at night, where Christ appeared to Constantine with the sign I told him to make the standard of the army in this sign. Another ancient historian also tells a similar story, where Constantine dreams that he should mark the shield of his soldiers on the army standards with that sign. Now, in many of the modern telling of the story, the sign which Constantine conquered is the cross, but it wasn't the cross. The sign that Constantine adopted was the Greek letters Rho and Chi, which was the first two letters of the Greek spelling of Christos, i.e. Christ, an obvious Christian symbol, still, but not a cross. I have posted a picture of Constantine Ark on the, on the podcast Facebook page, which still stands in Rome today with the Rho Chi symbol. The situation inside Rome could not have been more favorable to Constantine where the crowds were turning against the ruler, and he realized that to sit behind the walls for a siege was a risky proposition, so he could not count on his populace not to betray him. So, he took his army and offered battle to Constantine outside the walls and beyond the Tiber River, after building a temporary bridge that came to be known as the Milvian Bridge. So once the standards were raised, and the shields painted, Constantine fought outside Rome in the famous battle of the Milvian Bridge, outnumbered two to one, and with Christian symbols for his standard. The battle was brief. Constantine's army smashed through the lines, and the imposing army had no place to go but to drown in the Tiber River, and Constantine successfully added Italy to his domain. Now, at this point, you would think Constantine would be a fully committed Christian, but he had a long way to go. He was definitely impressed by the power of the Christian God, and as a result, when he entered Rome, he skipped the traditional sacrifices at the Temple of Jupiter. His victory arc that was commissioned on an occasion also displayed the Cairo symbol, but his coins, which was a major propaganda tool, still displayed pagan gods. One gets the image of Constantine as one who has found the most powerful god but are still afraid to offend the other gods. He didn't get it yet. The concept of one god and no other gods was a radical idea for the time and it needed some time to settle in. Either way, as a token of appreciation to the Christian god, Constantine and for their for now friendly imperial colleague Licinius met in Milan in 313 AD and signed the famous Edict of Milan, which officially granted full tolerance to Christianity and all religions in the empire. During the meeting, Licinius married Constantine's half-sister, and they cemented their alliance for now. Now, Licinius wasn't really interested in Christianity, and in time will end up persecuting the Christians. But the edict serves as a powerful political tool for him, as he was about to fight Daza for the East and Egypt. 
and Daza was in the middle of intense persecution of the Christians that took the life of Pope Peter in Egypt and countless others. Licinius was simply trying to undermine Daza and cast himself as the savior of the East, just like Constantine was the savior of Rome. As we saw from last episode, Licinius defeats Daza shortly after the edict, and the great persecution started by Diocletian finally ends after 10 years of ebbs and flow. Now we have a somewhat stable situation. Constantine is in the west, Licinius in the east, and the Copts have Bob Alexander as their head, with a priest called Arius quickly gaining a large following in Alexandria after the end of the persecution. Add to all that, a young deacon called Athanasius rising quickly through the church hierarchy and becoming Bob Alexander's secretary and protégé. But, as I mentioned before, Constantine was not a big fan of sharing power, and so was Licinius. Within two years, they started trying to outmaneuver one another, culminating in a full-out civil war a decade after the Edict of Milan. Constantine was victorious in the civil war and became the sole ruler of the Roman Empire in September 324 AD. A couple of notable things happened during those 10 years. Constantine's oldest son, Crispus, was becoming an efficient and a capable general, but he was from a prior marriage with his, with his mother either being deceased or divorced from Constantine. He will shortly play a part in one of the darkest chapters of Constantine's rule. The second is Constantine gradually got more involved in church matters, and his support for Christianity increased, going as far as using the powers of the civil government to quell a minor heresy in North Africa in 317 AD. So, by the time he took control of the whole empire in 324 AD, pagan gods disappeared from his coins, multiple bishops were at his court as advisors, and the Cairo symbol was everywhere. By 325 AD, he would call for the Church Council of Nicaea to settle the heresy of Arius and play an active role. Now he was a Christian in all but baptism. Before going any farther, since we're leaving Constantine for a little bit, I have to say that I intentionally left out a lot of details and name of Constantine's rise to become an emperor. My goal is not to give an exhaustive history of Constantine, but to simply highlight the circumstances of his rise, slow conversion to Christianity, and the rise of the Christian Empire, under which the Cots started their theological golden age. The second important piece that I skimmed over is the historical debate of whether Constantine really saw a sign in the sky, or dreamt it, or was all made up later in his career as part of cultivating an image of an emperor chosen by God. For that, I am personally content with the undisputed facts that Constantine had succeeded despite unfavorable odds, and that he used and stuck with Christian symbols from the Milvian Bridge battle and onward. Now, it's time to go back to Egypt and the brewing controversy of Arius that will engulf the empire for close to a hundred years. 
Arius was an Alexandrian priest from a Libyan origin. He was assigned to the most symbolically important church in Alexandria, at the site of St. Mark Martyrdom in Bucolia, just outside the city of Alexandria. On top of that, he was an incredibly eloquent speaker and attracted a large following, but he insisted on a problematic theological concept that was opposed by the Coptic church hierarchy, or at least some of them, as we saw last week where Bob Achilles either have restored him to the church, according to Coptic sources, or ordained him as a priest, according to the non-Coptic sources. Either way, Bob Achilles dies within a year, and he's followed by Bob Alexander in 312 AD, just before the Edict of Milan. As soon as the persecution was over, Bob Alexander immediately goes on a campaign against Arius and his teaching. Without going too much into theology, Arius' position was that in the Trinity, the Son was created before time and subordinate to the Father. The Son, a created being, was able to attain his divine position only when the Father granted it to him. Bob Alexander's position, which was later adopted by the Universal Church and formed the basis of Orthodoxy, was that the Father and the Son are co-eternal, i.e. without beginning or an end, and they are full and equal participants of the Godhead. In other words, the Son was not a created being, but a creator. By 318 AD, Bob Alexander convened the local council of the Egyptian bishops, who discussed the matter and formulated a confession of orthodoxy, Arius was asked to sign it and agree with its theology, or face excommunication. Naturally, Arius refused to sign it, and was excommunicated, but Licinius was still in charge of Egypt, and unlike Constantine, he had no interest in using the civil government to stamp out perceived or real heresies. So Arius was free to travel throughout the East and garner support among its bishops. Very quickly, he was able to gain several bishops to his side, including the influential bishop of Nicomedia, who was part of Licinius and later Constantine court. Similar to the local council of Alexandria, two local councils assembled in Asia Minor, i.e. Turkey, and Caesarea in Palestine, that supported Arius theology and called for his reinstatement in Alexandria. Encouraged by the support received, Arius decided to go back to Alexandria and set up a rival church. He also allied himself with the bishop ordained by Miletus, who were not recognized by Pope Alexander, thereby directly threatening the unity of the Copts under one church that was starting to represent the whole of Egypt. Now things got messy. The Copts were out of persecution and into internal divisions, and the divisions went beyond the complicated theology. The conflict was extended to all classes of the society, from simple sailors in Alexandria to the growing movement of monasticism. Copts and Christians all over the empire were picking sides, and the peace achieved by the Edict of Milan was quickly slipping. If only a good Christian emperor would intervene and put an end to the matter. Next week, 
Constantine would try to put an end to the matter. But things would get even more complicated, and San Asanasius would make his first official appearance on this podcast. I'm also planning to go through the theological and political climate of Alexandria, exploring why a local theological conflict became an international crisis that threatened the base of the newly minted Christian empire. Without the right geopolitical conditions, Arius' ideas would have died quickly and quietly. With that, farewell and until next week. Mm-hmm.